Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. And the podcast is also brought to you by OnX Maps. And with OnX Maps, you can know where you stand with the most accurate hunting GPS tech on the market with land ownership maps that work offline. Go to onxmaps.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 20% when you sign up for an app membership at onxmaps.com. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. We're also proud to partner with Sitka Gear, and if you go to sitkagear.com, you'll see their full line of clothing, and their tagline is turning clothing into gear, and they are doing that through advanced technology that allows you to stay in the field longer, hunt harder, and stay safer. The Elk Talk podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. Um, the, the insider is changing how haunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. And with that, Corey... We are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Hey, folks. Uh, Randy is here kind of running the... I'm, I'm running the record button today, Corey. <laughs> so I hope you got a lot of uh, knowledge because I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the technology challenges I'm facing today. 
You know, we said that as we started the podcast here that it, all the technology came right up the first try, and we were we could hear each other, and that's kind of a first for us. We're thinking about starting a podcast on running a podcast, yeah, because uh, it seems like we have more knowledge on how to hit record than we do on elk hunting now. So I, I stay know, tuned my, for that. We're we're technology yeah. experts for sure. Don't don't listen to this thing for anything related to elk hunting. This is all about technology and, and running your own podcast. <laughs> Not. <laughs> uh, the fact that the two of us can connect remotely and actually record the conversation is, uh, that just shows you how easy they've made technology for people to use. Yeah. You know what's going to happen, though? Everybody is going to say, well, if those two knotheads have the technology <laughs> to do a podcast, I need a podcast. <laughs> I so thought that had already happened. podcasts out there. <laughs> uh, but it, it, are, are you still amazed how many people download this thing? I just, you know, when we started it, I thought oh, this would be a fun platform for us to kind of share our passion and get us together, at least talking about elk hunting a little more frequently. And it's amazing to me how hungry people are for, um, maybe not hungry, how desperate people are for elk hunting <laughs> conversations and content if they're uh, willing to listen to a couple of yahoos like us. Well, my wife has a different perspective on it. She says that's just proof of how good you are at feeding a line of BS, she says. Well, that kind of falls <laughs> in the same bucket as desperation, right? <laughs> Uh, but uh, since it was my time to come up with the topic, uh, for those who don't know, Corey and I alternate uh, kind of what the topic's going to be. And I don't know how you sort these uh, comments we get, Corey, but I have a whole Outlook folder of emails from our listeners. And it is it takes a long time to sort that now. When we first started... It didn't take that long. Yep. Now it takes a long time. And I go and I search. Uh, I'll type in certain words to see how many of the emails <laughs> have that in it. And so I tried to put this in a, a general category, but maybe some specific categories also. And I, I found a bunch of people asking about how we handle wind. I found a bunch of people talking about thermals both in times of the day and in seasons of the year. Then I found a bunch of where people were asking us about cover sense, attractant sense, stuff like that, which I think that is probably people who maybe are coming from the whitetail world where that stuff's pretty popular. And then I just started typing in the search for all kinds of equipment items and the number of people who are asking us questions about certain new equipment items or, hey, I heard about this, I heard about that, uh, it, it caused me to wonder, are people more interested in equipment than they are the knowledge and experiences that come from being out in the field and, and investing in their mind uh, more than investing in uh, or in, in investing in yeah. equipment more than in their mind. And, no, and I think that comes down to, you know, everybody out there is trying to sell a product, sell gear. And it does. I mean, when you, if you're, especially for a new hunter getting in, you know, for me looking at something I've never done before, it, my first question is, what 
equipment do I need to be able to go and do that? I can figure the rest of it out, you know, most of the time for as far as the knowledge side. And it, you know, sometimes there's a lot steeper learning curve than others. But I think that a lot of times we get that bottleneck of what gear do I need? What equipment do I have to have to do this? And I uh, I see the same thing in those comments, you know, people asking, uh, what do you guys use for this? Or what do I need to get for this? And, you know, I, I'm kind of with you that... I think we put too much importance on the equipment side and not near enough on the the knowledge side, at least from a, a planning and the initial uh, just trying to prepare for it or get ready for it or learn about it. And I would, I know where you're going with that, and I'm 100% with you. Yeah. Well, over at Elk 101, don't you guys have, is it for your Elk Hunting University course or is it just Elk 101 where it's invest in yourself or something? You have some sort of model. Yeah, no, just uh, our University of Elk Hunting, uh, the online course, the tagline for that is invest in you. And uh, that's, you know, it's really people talk about boots and backpacks and weapons and everything. And there's always discussion about that and, you know, which brand is best, what what new item is the best thing. And, you know, we try to make sure that we tell people, hey, first invest in yourself. You know, whatever that is in the time, in energies and whatever you can put into learning as much about, you know, whether it's the animal you're pursuing, the the terrain, the habitat, any of those things. But there's so much that you, uh, you know, that you can learn and you are truly the greatest weapon you take into the field with you. It's not the bow or the rifle. It's not the backpack or the boots. As important as those things are. Uh, they're not the most important thing and they're not kind of the, they're not the foundation that you need to be building your passion for hunting on it. It needs to start with you. Yeah. So if someone wants to sign up for the university of elk hunting course, they can use a promo code, can't they? <laughs> I, th- I think that people could probably go to walmart.com and use our promo code at this point. We've, uh, we've, yeah, and it's an easy one to remember. So, Elk Talk. If you just uh, if you go to elk101.com, click on the link for the online course, and decide to sign up uh, and invest in you, then uh, use the code Elk Talk, and it's going to save you twenty percent when you sign up. So, well, pretty good, uh, pretty good investment, I think. As the guy who did a lot of those videos for your segments on late season and post rut, I think I need to be allowed to throw the disclaimer out there that I'm not responsible for the outcome. <laughs> what? I have a hundred percent guarantee for success on there, specifically really? on the oh, specifically on the module that you created on late season and uh, post rut elk hunting. Oh, Corey, gosh, I'm so sorry, man. Let me get you in touch with someone who would be a better person to do that. I know <laughs> this is kind of the last moment sort of filler that you needed, but uh, no. I've, uh, we're doing some, some more updated videos on that, Corey, for, our, for uh, a lot of reasons. So maybe I should look at those and give you my, my latest effort on that. Yeah, either that or I mean, there what you what you did. I don't know what was it two years ago when we added that in there. It's uh, it's gold, and that was the thing that was missing from my uh, my experience is just that late season and post rut. And you know, I've got a chance to experience it a lot more over the last couple of years, and actually personally learned from the content you provided and and put it to put it to the test and i think you know i'm i'm a slow learner i've always said that and this year when we hunted <laughs> together in montana we hunted on our own the first two days and 
we didn't see a single elk. And then we got in camp with you, and within uh, about an hour of teaming up with you, we were in elk, and we saw elk every single hunt uh, after that. So, if well, uh, and and that and that's why I didn't personally add that content to the course when I created it because I knew that yeah, I can I can add generalized stuff that's going to help people, but I wanted to make sure that what we had was was the best of the best. And that's where I think you truly shine and, and no elk hunting is that late season and post rut like no one else does. Well, as long as you'll continue to, to teach me how to not swallow my diaphragm calling to actually, <laughs> use it, uh, we'll call this a fair trade. That sounds good. And I think the combination of the two of us uh, is definitely brings a more comprehensive look at all seasons and aspects of elk hunting for sure. Well, I hope so. Um, yeah. But uh, the the first one of these emails uh, came about and it's uh, the person was asking about how do how do we manage wind? Uh, and <laughs> I, the, the way I read it at first, I'm like, well, I'd have no control over the wind. I was just going to say manage. First thing I think when I hear the word manage is control. Yeah. Uh, but then as I read it again, I'm like, oh, okay. The person is saying, kind of was asking, is wind as important as, as everyone says it is for elk hunting? But then also elk usually don't live on these flat, consistent landscapes how do you deal with the wind that you feel on this ridge compared to what the wind is doing on a ridge that faces a different direction another way so that was one of them about wind in general uh quite a few questions about thermals uh i mean people asking is specifically what time of day does the thermal switch uh, almost as if it's got a reverse, you know, a forward and reverse switch or something where it does this and then the switch is hit and then it's just going the other way. And it kind of uh, does, but you have to, you have to remember that it's also a lot like driving with a teenager. And while there is a switch that goes from forward to reverse, it's pretty herky jerky sometimes. <laughs> Not always straightforward and smooth. Yeah. And then, uh, the, the scent, uh, and odor elimination products is the those couple questions are what sent me into the the investigation of all these equipment things. So I don't know which one you want to start with. Um, uh, if there's one I of those that, topics, I think it's great, and they all kind of uh, kind of tie in together. So I think we can just pick one, and I'm sure it'll lead into another. Yeah. Well, wind, uh, I'll start with wind. And to me, wind can have so many different impacts on how hunting or how my hunting strategy gets put into place that day. Um, and I'm not talking thermal, I'm talking wind. And I'm talking also probably more as it relates to post rut of, you know, later in October and then the, the late seasons of November. Um, wind, uh, uh, obviously you, you, no matter what you're doing, you never want to come in from upwind that, that goes without saying, uh, and you can't control the wind. So you have to figure out how do you 
change your hunting style, your approach, your tactics based on the fact that, okay, all of a sudden it's 30 mile an hour wind today. Um, the only thing I hate hunting in more than hunting in wind is hunting in rain. Uh, <laughs> my crew hates it when it's windy because they know Randy's going to be kind of cranky that day. But, <laughs> hey, can hey. I, can I interrupt you really quickly? Yep. What, what is, what do you consider the difference to be between wind and thermals? Cause I know a lot of people ask that when I start talking oh. about, Hey, we got winded or, you know, keep the wind in your favor uh-huh. or what are the thermals doing? I think, you know, a lot of people we sometimes talk about it like they're interchangeable or the same thing. And, and you had mentioned right there, we're talking about wind now, not thermals. So what, what is the difference okay. between wind and yeah. thermals? Thanks for slowing me down on that because I, you know, I just make that assumption that people know the distinction and in wind is pretty much what your prevailing wind is going to be. The thermal is, and one is micro one's macro, I guess would maybe be a way to say it. Um, you get to the top of a ridge and you're going to feel what the prevailing wind is. And a lot of times the prevailing wind can dominate what the thermal effect is if the wind is strong enough. Uh, but that said, there's a lot of times, probably more times than not, where the thermal will mess you up more than the prevailing wind. So a thermal might be... a, a have you ever had a thermal that you felt was more than 10 miles an hour? No. <laughs> Have you ever had a prevailing wind that you thought was more than 20 miles an hour? Uh, I'm not sure what answer you're looking for there, but when I think of prevailing wind, I would say no. I've had gusts that are higher, but... Um, you know, and I think for me, my eye was really open. I hear people talk all the time, you know, in certain areas that they get in um, and the wind is, you know, the wind is howling all day or middle of the day, the wind's going back and forth. And a lot of the areas that I hunt in, I haven't experienced that. We have really consistent thermals midday. A lot of times we'll get an afternoon wind that I think comes in as those thermals start competing, consistent thermals midday. A lot of times we'll get an afternoon wind that I so, Corey, as much as we were bragging about our little uh, technology, <laughs> I knew better. Something. One of us hit a button and we lost it. So, uh, I should have known better than to say anything about us being technology experts because so, I'm going to ask, the- ask the question again for the audience. <laughs> they probably heard it the first time and said, What was all that static I just heard? <laughs> so, I was asking, uh, Have you ever had a thermal? coming up the hill or down the hill that you thought was more than 10 miles an hour? Uh, thermals, no. Typically, thermals, you usually have to use, you know, a little wind detector, a little puffer bottle just to be able to detect which way it's going. Those thermals are usually not um, the one where you can, you know, you stand there and you lick your finger and stick it out. It's usually a lot less detectable. Uh, yeah. And then I guess the other question then is, have you ever had a prevailing wind of more than 20 miles an hour? Uh, you know, I, I don't know 100% what, what answer you're looking for there, but in my mind, I guess uh, I would say no, that I haven't had a prevailing wind that's more than 20 miles an hour, but a lot of times we'll get gusts. Um, that are, but as far as a sustained wind that's more than 20 miles an hour outside of Wyoming, I, I haven't seen too much of that. Um, 
I was going to add, if you say no, then you've not hunted elk in Wyoming. <laughs> yep, and that's, that's absolute truth. And, you know, and, and going back to the thermals um, not being more than 10 miles an hour, once they settle down and start going the direction they're going to go for the, the remainder of that period, um, they usually aren't too strong. But during that transition period where they go from up to down, uh, sometimes they can get pretty gusty. And you can have these huge just gusts that come up out of nowhere. It's just clear blue sky, uh, not a cloud in the sky. And all of a sudden this big gust of wind comes up. And especially in the afternoon during that change, it just seems like it's a little bit more violent uh, during that transition. And you will get some gusty winds. and It'll blow uphill and all of a sudden you get calm for like 30 seconds. You let out a bugle and all of a sudden the wind starts gusting down the hill. Um, and that's that transition of the thermals and, and maybe even just providing a little bit more information on thermals. Um, what we have, they're called diurnal thermals. And that means, you know, die twice a day. So they change direction twice a day. And it's the competing temperatures of the air that causes that change. So warm air rises and cold air drops. And so when it's cold, think middle of the night, uh, the thermals are moving down the mountain. And then during that transition period, when the sun comes out and the air starts getting warmer, uh, you have that transition where the air starts to rise. And then throughout the middle of the day, when it's warmer out, the, uh, the air is typically moving up the hill. And then of course in the afternoon, when the shadows come out, it starts cooling the air and cooling the ground. The ground cooling off cools the air and starts pulling it down. And so the thermal switch and move down the hill. So just that basic understanding of that, the diurnal thermal uh, that we experience in the mountains is important to understand because um, that's kind of going to, for the most part, dominate the, the pattern of the wind and the air and the thermal movement. But then you get into a prevailing wind, which is usually caused by some sort of a storm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different factors that can contribute to that. But anytime you have a storm front moving in, you know, you'll sometimes see wind gusts expected 20 miles an hour out of the northeast. And that's a directional wind that's not related to the thermals. And Thermal. so I think that that's important to understand for for an elk hunter, especially in the mountain states. That that's why I was asking about: Have you had a thermal under ten or over ten miles an hour, or winds over twenty miles an hour? Is that's kind of the distinction? Is prevailing winds are going to usually be a stronger wind, a more consistent wind, a function of the jet stream and the weather patterns. Yep. Thermals are usually harder to detect, more subtle can vary from the shaded side of a hill to the sunny side of a hill, can vary from the bottom of a drainage to halfway up the drainage. So most people, when we say get tricked by the wind, I think more often we're probably saying the thermals got us. But Absolutely. They, they, yeah. they become a little bit synonymous. Uh, and so when the person asks the question about how do we manage wind, uh, I'm not sure if they were referring to thermals, but even <laughs> I just had this discussion here of how they sometimes are synonymous, but probably when you break it down to their finer detail, a thermal is much different than a prevailing wind. And, yeah. and I, you know, personally, I'm, I absolutely obey the law of the thermals. You know, it's, it's one of those things that I just, I stress over and over and you and I have talked about it 
you know, in person at least quite a few times, how yeah. important that is. But I'll, I'll stop during a hunt and say, what what direction is the wind going? Meaning thermals. I think, you know, we, we just habitually lump them all into that one term of wind. But understanding the difference is super important when you're out hunting that, you know, if you have a thermal and understanding what it's doing and, and what you mentioned there about being different in the bottom of the draw as it is on an open hillside, even just 15 yards away uh, is super important because if you get a response from an elk down in a canyon and you're up above him and it's, you know, say 8.30 or 9 in the morning and you've got 30 minutes to work in on this bull, the wind might be going, you know, it might already be coming up where you're at. And you think, all right, we can just drop straight down on this bowl. The wind's coming up. The thermals are coming up again. There I go interchanging the terms. But uh, you start dropping down the hillside and you get off the open ridge that you're on. And 100 yards down there, all of a sudden you stop and pull out your puffer bottle. And you're like, uh, thermals are going straight down the hill. What just happened? Why are they switching? And yeah. it might be another hour and a half in that thick timber or down in the bottom of the drainage before the thermals actually change and start coming up. And even then, like you said, you might get down in the bottom and they're going down, you're moving up on that bowl and he's just a hundred yards up off of the bottom and you start moving up to set up on him and the thermals switch and move uphill. And you're like, why do they keep switching? Well, they aren't actually switching. They're really consistent, but they're very uh, inconsistent in the terrain, the geography, the exposure to the sun, the shade that's hitting there, you know, all those different things. And that's typically when I see the biggest uh, I don't know, challenge, I guess, for us to overcome when we're talking about thermals is during those transitional periods, you know, early morning, that eight o'clock to nine o'clock time frame, or late afternoon, that four to five o'clock time frame, when the thermals are trying to change and they're competing from ridge to hillside or north face to ridge or bottom of the drainage to an open hillside just 100 yards away, those thermals are pulling at each other and it can cause a lot of swirling air and, and make it really hard to uh, get in and set up on an elk. Yeah. And that's, I think that gets to, I get, hopefully you can put the question behind us, a difference between wind and thermal yeah. from a technical standpoint, even though we use them interchangeably. But I think that gets us to the next point of uh, some of these people asking, uh, what time of day does the thermal switch? And there's no real time of day, back to my point of it's not like there's a switch where it says, well, it's 930, so we got to hit the switch and everything's going uphill now. Yep. Um, it, the, the time of day that will switch in November is way different than the time of day when those switch in September, just because the days are longer, the arc of the sun and its direct heating of the surface of the hill or of the of the ground will happen at different times of the day in November than it will in September. So, well, and even even to add to that, it can be completely different on September first as it is on September second. You know, cloud cover contributes to it. Yeah. The temperature and the the increase, the gradient of the temperature as it increases in the morning. You know, I remember last year we had some cloud cover on opening day here in Idaho, which is August 30th. And we got out of the truck at 5.30, 5.45, something like that. And the thermals were already coming up the hill. Like it was just so warm out. And then the cloud cover just basically trapped all that warm air overnight. And thermals, I don't know if they even changed that night. They, they kept coming up. And then other days, you know, you have September 5th, it might be 19 degrees that morning. And it might stay really, really cool until... 10 o'clock 
And, you know, the thermals still keep coming down as long as that air is cool, uh, maybe until 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock. But on a normal morning where it's 40 degrees in the morning, which is still relatively cool for September, if it warms up really rapidly by 7.30 or so, you know, it might be 55, 60 degrees and the thermals change and start coming up then. So it really, there's so many factors that contribute to it. Um, there's not really something you can just set your your program to and go straight to it and expect it to, to continue. You have to be constantly monitor, monitoring it even throughout each day. Yeah, and for me, I just, I break it down to its most basics that thermals are a function of heat change. Yep. And heat change can be direct sunlight versus cloud cover. It can be ambient air temperature on a really cold, damp, dreary day where you wake up, it's 36 degrees and it never gets above 42 degrees that day. You're, you're yep. not going to have a big change in thermals because you don't have a big change in temperature. And shaded slopes are not going to heat as fast as sun-exposed slopes. So just if people think about it in that respect and in that context, hopefully that makes the, the answer to this question a little bit easier to solve, that you just you got to be paying attention to it while you're out there. Understand what causes a thermal. And no, that's probably what you're going to have to try to manage rather than what the the quote unquote wind is for that day. Yep. And I, I always try to avoid that transitional time frame when it is changing as far as moving in on an elk. There are a lot of times that we'll get there, you know, at eight forty five on a ridge and get a bull bugling. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I think we could get in there on that elk and be okay but I'm not going to take a chance. So we just back over the ridge and we'll sit there for 45 minutes until we feel everything kind of balance out and get consistent. And then we'll go over and, and plan the attack on how to get in on that elk. But that transitional period, it just seems like, you know, you're standing on the ridge, thermals are coming up, you drop 10 yards off the ridge and all of a sudden they're going down and the bulls across the draw on a, you know, North face. And so it's just all of that different uh, transitions of thermals make it really difficult to try to have any any kind of a consistent plan getting in there. So a lot of times we'll just back out until things do get consistent. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, going back to that question initially, how do you manage the wind? And my first thought was, how do you control the wind? You can't control the wind or the thermals or any of that, but you can control how you use it to your advantage and you can control uh, how the elk use it as well. And, and elk survive by thermals and wind. That's yeah. honestly 90% of their survival is based on their sense of smell. And so it is important to pay attention to, and it's important to understand. Uh, but it's also important to realize that you can control, maybe not control the wind and the thermals, but you can control how you use them and how the elk uh, use them and definitely take advantage of that. Yeah, you, you brought up a good example, and I've made this mistake so many times. You think I'd quit making it, but I'm sure I'll make it again next year. Uh, <laughs> is you're on a slope that is some, the sun is hitting that more directly than the slope across from you. You hear a bull bugle, and you, you, where you're at, the thermal is coming uphill very consistently. So you start making your move. Okay, I got to get across over to that ridge that bull is on. And as quick as you get down into the more shaded part, all of a sudden you're like, uh oh, I 
crossed over and got above this bowl and over here in the shade, it's doing, it's going downhill. It's just before you even leave your current position, you need to be thinking or at least anticipating what is that thermal doing over there? Because once you get over there and that thermal betrays you, the gig is probably up. Yep. And it's amazing how much your scent fans out, especially in thermals. If you have a a prevailing wind, a lot of times it'll grab your scent and just keep that cone pretty tight going the direction it's going. But in thermals, it's amazing how quickly your scent fans out and covers an entire hillside rather than just, you know, keeping tight in a profile as it moves down the ridge or something. Um, But that, you know, it brings up a really good point when I, when I talk about being able to control the wind, uh, not being able to do that, but controlling how you use it. When you think about thermals, they usually move either straight up the mountain or straight down the mountain, which, yeah. you know, and it, as we mentioned, it might be different, but they're usually, thermals will usually never move side hill. They'll never move across a mountain. Uh, and that's because, you know, you've got your hot air rises, cold air drops. And so elevation wise, directionally, that air, when you have thermals that are prevailing, is either moving up the mountain or down into the bottom. And just that little bit of knowledge and understanding of thermals can help you really take advantage of it. Because if you get a, like you mentioned, if you move across, thermals are coming up on your side, you have an elk bugling across the draw on the other side of the mountain, you get up above him because the thermals are up on your side and then realize the thermals are moving down and you're directly above him, the gig's over. I always try to approach that elk from a direct side hill approach. And that way, if the thermals do change, and they might change mid-stock, mid-setup or whatever, uh, if they do change, it's usually a 180-degree switch. And as long as I'm not within 50 or 60 yards of that elk and they switch, I'm not affected by that 180-degree switch because I'm moving in completely perpendicular to the mountain and to the elk. So what you're saying is if you saw it on topo lines on your approach – you're coming in on the same topo line they are, so that this straight uphill or straight downhill is a wind that's perpendicular to your approach angle, so it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Yep. Cool. Well, and honestly, to- that... What's that? You need a diagram like that. <laughs> I've got one. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, and honestly, that that understanding and that simple little adjustment to how we approach an elk to set up to call them in has made such a drastic improvement to our efficiency to be able to call in elk. Because honestly, the wind is the biggest factor. When we when we're calling in an elk, it's usually the wind more times than not that affects our setup. Yeah. And if if you kind of take the thermals out of play, um you can still call elk in. You know, they might circle down below you, but if you're set up in the right way and have the shooter down below, knowing that the elk's going to circle on the downwind side to get the scent and have the shooter set up down there in the setup before the elk even can get in and, and smell you, it really takes that advantage away from them. Like I mentioned, I would say 90% of an elk's survival comes through its nose, and if you eliminate that or neutralize their advantage with thermals and scent, uh, it gives you a huge advantage and uh, really increases the efficiency of those setups. Yeah. Well, no charge for that advice, folks. Corey Jacobson, <laughs> come in at the same elevation as the elk, and then whether it's an uphill thermal or a downhill thermal, you've still got options. <laughs>
man, you're just giving this stuff away today, Corey. <laughs> I love talking about thermals and that's, you know, you mentioned diagrams and that comes, that comes, I think, into my uh, engineering background, just being a geek about diagrams and understanding those technical details and then uh, looking to improve efficiency. And it's funny because I, I coach, I'm coaching high school basketball right now. And we're down to our last two weeks, you know, really important games. Uh, we beat an undefeated team two nights ago, and, and tonight we play a team that we're tied with for second place. So some important stuff. And at practice last night, these poor high school boys that just, you know, their minds aren't developed. Their brains are still trying to figure out <laughs> left from right and all of that. And I'm I'm pulling out these sketches that I sit there for hours and diagram, you know, what, what our opponent's defense is doing and what we have to do to break it. I'm like, okay, there's a there's a we can take advantage of this weakness right here. And so I'm showing them these diagrams. You can just see the deer in the headlight looks from them. And I'm like, hey, okay, I'm gonna break this down simply. You go stand right here. When we're running offense, make sure you're standing right here. And there's a reason for that and just trust me on it because it will improve our efficiency to be able to get the ball and get open shots. So what you're saying is basketball coaching gives you a lot of opportunity to, to diagram things. Uh, that, and it gives me a lot of opportunity to uh, continue to lose what little bit of hair I have left. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think a transition from here, from wind and thermals to this question on scent control, um, I might be wrong, but I think a lot of this probably comes from the experience that maybe whitetail hunters have, where they get up in the morning and they see the weather forecast says, okay, wind out of the southwest. Well, I'm going to go hunt this stand because a steady southwest wind makes it better to be in this stand and they don't have to deal with thermals as much. And then also I see scent control products used way more with whitetail hunters than I do with Western hunters. Maybe I'm wrong in that, but that's just my own personal experience. And so I, I often give a pretty <laughs> off the cuff response. <laughs> When people ask me what scent control products do you use, uh, I don't use any because my theory always has been that if an elk, if I get an elk downwind of my scent corridor, I could have uh, any, there, there is no scent control product that's going to rescue that situation. Yep. No, and that's mine. People ask me what, what I use to, uh, you know, what scent control product I use, my answer is kind of the same. It's a little smart, Alec, but I use the wind. That's my scent control product. And, <laughs> and again, Takio, meaning the thermals or the wind, but I, I'm 100% with you that you can just douse yourself with cow in heat urine to the point that you can't even, you know, your eyes are watering because it smells so badly. And a bull elk will smell that. There's no doubt if the wind, you know, and he's not going to smell it unless the thermals or the wind are going to him. If he's, you know, 100 yards from you and the, you have the wind in your favor, no matter how much of that urine you spray all over yourself or you drip down the back of your neck or whatever, the elk's not going to smell it. The only sure. way he's going to smell it is, is if the thermals are taking it to him. And if the thermals are taking that scent to him, 
it's not covering up your scent. It's mixing with your scent, and he's going to smell you and that cow in heat urine. And there are times that an elk will be so out of his mind in the rut that he will forget about the human scent that he just smelled and come walking to it. But that's a that's a 1 in 20 or 1 in 25 experience and encounter, and I'm not putting my eggs in that basket. That's that's too low of an odd too yeah. uh, too low of a chance to to take on an elk hunt, so I don't even don't even mess with them. I play the wind, obey the wind, and everything else. I think for elk hunting is can I, can I go as far as to say a waste of time and a gimmick? Yep, you can say that. <laughs> I I probably would have used a more impolite term, but uh, <laughs> I mean, as an example, we're doing a backpack hunt. I can't change clothes every day. We're doing six, eight, 10 miles a day in September when it's hot, you're sweating. You almost don't even want to sleep with yourself, let alone stand around camp next to the way some of the other guys smell. Uh, and there's just no way around that. You're, you, there's no scent control product that is going to help an active, you know, just seek and find a Western elk hunter because you just are creating that much of you know body oils and sweat and and all that bacteria that comes with that and you can't carry a new set of clothes for your morning hunt and your evening hunt and the second morning hunt and the second evening hunt so you, you just have to accept the fact back to your point yeah my scent control is by controlling how i am in in relation to the elk and in relation to the thermal and the winds yeah, and save totally. your and, and buy more tags. Exactly. <laughs> no, and I think you know. For me, I've used scent control sprays before. You know, a scent neutralizing spray, mm-hmm. and I used to use it pretty religiously. I mean, every time we'd go out, we'd spray down a scent. I'd carry a bottle of it in my backpack, and if we were moving in on an elk, we'd spray down before we started moving in, and. And I've had some experiences where I thought, man, that really did work. The thermals were going his direction, and he stepped into the shooting lane, or he came a little farther than he otherwise would have. So I think it might buy you a slight advantage in, you know, instead of your your scent moving toward the elk and fanning out in a 90-degree cone, it might tighten it down to a 75-degree cone, and that bull might come another 10 yards into a shooting lane before he, you know, before your scent is strong enough that uh, that he catches it and, and detects it as being danger. Uh, but to, to rely on it and to just go right above an elk and not care about what the wind's doing because of that, uh, it's never going to work. And the only way it would work is if it completely contained your scent 100%, which, like you mentioned, you sweat one time, you spray everything down with that stuff, and it might might work for a second. But the minute you breathe... And the minute you start sweating and the minute that, you know, something that you touched didn't get sprayed by it, that goes out the window. And to rely on it, I think, is would be very foolish for an elk hunter. Well, once again, we've destroyed any possibility of a scent control product sponsoring the Elk Talk podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I'll stop right there. Yeah. (laughs) So... That that kind of segued into a whole list of other questions related to gear and equipment. And to protect the innocent, uh, I won't (laughs) say some of the 
questions or the brands or the the item that the question was about. Um, I was just going to say, we aren't going to list out all the products we think are gimmicks, are we? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. Yeah, we won't go there. But maybe a couple of them that, generally speaking. I, I think that the flip side of that answer or that question could be, if you see it in your pack or my pack, you can pretty much bet that it's not a gimmick. How's that? Is that a better way to say that? You know, and, and yes, it is. And I think that that's a, a good time to to uh, make that point that I will never use a product that I don't 100% believe in. Yep. And we start talking about sponsors and partners and, and all of this. And, you know, the, in the hunting industry, there are a lot of people that are trying to make a living in the hunting industry or making a living in the hunting industry and relying 100% on sponsors, you know, through producing content. When, when we produce content, we don't get paid. Nobody has to pay to listen to the podcast. So our way of, of covering those costs and hopefully putting bread on the table is to get a sponsor. And and you and I both, um, I think that that's one of the things that, that I respect about people who are able to do that is we will never – use a product simply because we're getting paid to use it. If we're using it, it's because we 100% believe in it and it works. And that translates into an opportunity to create a relationship with that company um, that may or may not turn into uh, a sponsorship type of an opportunity. But I will never bow to to a jumping ship from one product to another because one of them's offering money and the other isn't, or one of them offers more money. Uh, you, you nailed it. If it's in my pack, it's because I 100% believe in it and feel that it contributes to success in some way. And, yeah. and there are a lot of products you'll never see in my pack that you know, a lot of other people are using. And that company is very successful with a good marketing campaign. Uh, but it just that doesn't mean that only the products in my pack are the only ones I think that'll work. You know, I, there's no, a lot more that goes into that. And there's a lot of a lot of competing products that are probably just as good as what I use. Um, but yeah, you, you and I both, if we open our pack, uh, there's something in there that we believe in and it works. Yeah. Which then gets to, and I, here's what, where I would worry with someone using scent control products in a Western hunt with thermals is you feel that it's a, I'm going to call it a gadget or gimmick. The, the person buying it because they, it probably works for them say in a whitetail situation they don't view it as a gadget or a gimmick but it's more of a a uh, crutch or a band-aid for you to feel that you don't have to pay attention to the thermal yep. there's a lot there's a lot of other what i will say are truly gimmicks they cause people to think well and i went through this phase i tell people i went through the gadget gizmo phase when I was trying to figure out elk, I thought if I bought one of these, I'm going to find an elk tomorrow. And if I bought two, I'll probably find four elk tomorrow. <laughs> I blew so much stupid money on things that really didn't do anything other than put some pocket, some money in the pocket of a pretty slick sales guy for suckers like me. And it wasn't until I started investing in my own mind, my own knowledge, my own experiences, 
that I started getting some returns on my efforts in my mind and my what money it costs to go out and actually hunt. Which brings me to my my motto. You've said it many times on this podcast is never compromise your budget to go and actually hunt by buying more gadgets and gizmos. Yep. Yep. No, and, and honestly, it's like I mentioned, if you are, if you spray yourself down with a scent control product, it might work, I'll say one out of 20 times where it's like, wow, that elk really should have scented me. And he didn't, this stuff really works. Maybe one out of 20 times that'll work. But the other 19 out of 20 times, if you had learned about thermals and paid attention to them and were very diligent and strict in obeying the the law of thermals as you approach that elk, the other 19 out of 20 times you're going to find success by doing that. And, you know, it's, it's far more important to invest in that knowledge, understanding how thermals work, how elk rely on them, how you can use them to your advantage. And yeah, it takes more time. It takes more effort. It takes more energy to, to gain that knowledge than it does to go and buy a $10 bottle of scent spray. Um, but it's going to be far more productive, far more efficient, and far more beneficial to you as an elk hunter, especially in the long run. And it's going to improve your efficiency and your success far more than that product is. Yeah. Well, I, I, I <clears throat> this might be some thin ice I'm going to skate out onto here. So uh, if you feel like I'm destroying our podcast in the next two minutes, you can probably edit and privately have this part edited out. But you and I have been doing this a long time, as have quite a few people. And if you look at the investments that we have made before we got into this as, as media producers, we were still making big investments in our, our gear whether it's our bow and our rifle, our optics, our backpacks, our boots, our clothing, whatever. But I would say that none of the investments I've made in that stuff were as helped contribute to my success in the field to the degree of being out there and failing and making mistakes. And I don't mean that the things that you see me using or you using, they do help. But the, the absolute core basis of success in finding elk and consistently tagging elk comes in the knowledge that you have, not the gear that you spend money on. So there. Yep. You, <laughs> that was not thin ice. That was like a a nugget of absolute elk hunting wisdom that if you want to be successful, gain the knowledge and experience, everything else will fall into place. And yes, we rely on gear and I do feel gear contributes to our success as an add on to the knowledge and the experience that, that we've gained. And, and truly I, I would be very confident to go out in the woods with a bow that I make out of a stick and arrows that I whittle out of a stick and, you know, a string that I make out of a strand off of a bale of hay and wearing, you know, bright red clothing and not even having a backpack on my back and going barefoot, I could still get out there and find an elk and call an elk in. 
Now, I may not quite be able to hit it as proficiently as I'd want to and other things, but because of that knowledge, I'm confident that I can go out and find elk and hunt elk. And gear definitely contributes to my confidence, but it's not the core of my confidence. And, you know, we talked about, uh, I think the couple podcasts ago, the title of it was the dime store elk hunter or something about, you know, gear on a budget and everything. You want to be a millionaire when it comes to elk hunting knowledge and you can, you can get away with being poor in gear. Uh, the gear will come. You can, you can spend money on gear down the road. You can invest in good quality gear as you go. But if you're just getting into it, the very first thing you need to do is absolutely invest in yourself and your yeah. knowledge. Uh, that's it. And some people have kind of looked at me funny when I, you know, do a Q&A session or I do a seminar when I say that. But if if we agree that, yeah, I don't know what the number would be, some would say that 90% of the elk are killed by 10% of the hunters or you know, 80% of the elk are killed by 20% of the hunters, whatever that percentage is, it's not because that group that killed the 80% or 90% are the top 10 or 20% in spending money on gadgets and gear and gizmo. <laughs> yeah. You, they might have great gear, but if you unwrapped the, the gear layer, you would see that they are in the top 10 or 20% when it comes to knowledge and experience that they've gained by spending every possible day out in the hills that they can because they know every day whether success or failure is still progress in building their elk knowledge. Yep. No, I, when I when I first started finding success as an elk hunter, I think I was still wearing tennis shoes uh, the backpack I had was tree bark camo and, you know, the zippers didn't work on it. It was the cheapest hand-me-down backpack you could possibly find. Uh, my pack frames that I carried an elk out on were ones that had been left outside in the back of the truck. And I mean, it literally, I was a dime store elk hunter at that point, <clears throat> but it didn't prevent me from being successful. Yep. Now, as I, as I learned more and more about elk and realized, hey, if I have good boots, I'm able to stay out in the hills longer and increase my success even more. Uh, I'm able to hike farther and be confident to go down. You know, all these different things that I've now added to my my gear list uh, have come after the success actually came. And none of the gear directly turned on the light switch from from failure to success. And again, it's important to understand Gear can contribute to your success. It can contribute to your confidence and everything, but don't put gear as your foundation to achieving success. Put put that knowledge first. Learn as much as you can. Get out in the woods as much as you can. And once you start understanding elk and getting into elk and becoming, you know, maybe even closer to success or more successful, um, the gear will help you maybe be more consistent and comfortable and contribute to success in that way. But yeah, if you if you're building your success pyramid on a layer of gear, you're you're probably going to fail. Yeah, your pyramid is going to look like a house of cards. Yep. <laughs> and I guess the other part of that is we we all have our own budget constraints, whether it's financial budgets or time budgets. As you're allocating that. 
always allocate first to the opportunities, whether it's the time and the money to go out and get the tags and get the seasons that you can go and do this and then upgrade your gear, you know, buy something that you've been maybe thinking about for a long time that is going to make you more comfortable while you're out there in bad conditions or something, you know, but never reverse that and make the gear, the budget priority make the tag and license and going and doing it the first budget priority. Absolutely. No, they're going to give you the, the failures there. It's going to, yeah, I can't, uh, it's really hard to explain how valuable it's been for me to have to hunt places I've never went before, how valuable it's been to have only five days to go there, regardless of the weather condition, regardless of the hunting pressure, um, going and doing it in maybe outside of your perfect, oh, today's the day. I, I'll go today because everything's perfect. Pushing yourself outside of those perfect situations is another huge, at least for me, has been another huge learning experience. And the way yeah. you do that is by buy, uh, making sure your your budget allows you to have a tag to go hunt that year. Yep. But yeah. I think it's funny because I'm sitting here, you know, talking about all this, and I my last elk hunt that I went on was in November over in Montana with you, and it was pretty cold. You know, we were expecting even colder temperatures, and I showed up with <laughs> kidney warmers and down booties and all of these little gadgets that that uh kept me comfortable but uh i did not fill an elk tag there so you know even even going to that level of i've got what i consider to be the best of the best from top to bottom in gear at this point um (laughs) even to the details of hand warmers and kidney warmers and down booties and uh hot cocoa and everything else i didn't fill an elk tag so it's it does not guarantee success to have the best of the best in gear. Yeah. So if you send us gear, specific gear questions, um, they, they probably won't get brought up on the podcast. If you or I think it's trying to replace elk hunting knowledge and elk knowledge with just, Oh, I'll go buy something. That'll, that'll get me closer to success. If, yeah, I think you and I can cipher through these questions to know is this geared towards hey, I'm I'm struggling, so if I buy something, maybe my struggles will be less, versus the person who's asking a question that they've really thought about this, they've had some experiences that they're just seeking other people's experiences and perspectives. So the questions that get asked here are used for the content of the podcast. Uh, kind of fall into some different categories in that respect. Yeah. But it that what I started down a path there just a minute ago, I, I have a question <laughs> for you. Um uh because I, I do a lot of rifle shooting. Um and I'm I apply this to my archery stuff also. But when I go and I say I get a new rifle, a new load, a new scope, everything, I want to go out in the most perfect of conditions to make sure I'm dialed and zeroed. Once I'm dialed and zeroed, 
I go out in the worst of conditions. I want to go out when it's raining, when it's cold, when it's snowing, when the wind is blowing, because I want to know how my gear performs and how I perform under those conditions. And I, a lot of times when I'm, I have that archery range in my backyard, I'll take my quiver off and I'll just shoot, you know, with bare bow, no, no quiver to, to make sure, okay, my form is good. I'm, I'm hitting where I want. My groups are tight, but then when the wind's blowing, I'll go out there and I'll put that quiver on there because a quiver full of arrows catches way more wind than a bare bow. And I'll force myself to shoot in these really windy conditions because I've had plenty of shots out there in the real world where the wind wasn't still. And I, I, I don't know. Do you, do you spend time practicing and, and doing some of your, your training or whatever you want to call it in diverse conditions and situations and setups or are you, do you have a fair weather? Am I a fair weather preparer? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't go quite to to that level. I think um, I've, I've been doing it long enough that I've done it. You know, I've practiced those things. I have uh, experienced those things in the field. And I kind of, you know, I, I, I guess it comes a little more natural now that if the wind's blowing, yes, I understand this is what it's doing. This is how I have to compensate for it. Um, but I think that as we're looking at an overall question on on equipment, yes, absolutely. I test it in every condition that it's probably ever going to face. You know, I if I'm looking at a, a backpacking tent for September, I'm going to order it in March and I'm going to go out in March and April shed hunting and take it out and see how it does in spring weather when it's wet, when it's colder than it's going to be in September. Uh, you know, there's, there's some conditions that are just really hard to replicate at home or leading up to September or October. Uh, and on the flip side, you know, when we hunted in sub-zero weather in November, it's really hard to replicate that and test it outside of going and, and suffering through it for five days in November. Uh, you know, a sleeping bag, for instance, or a, uh, a thermal sleeping pad or different things like that. It's sometimes you just have to go right out and, you know, try it out in the game type of a thing so uh, but yeah i mean as far as like shooting a bow i'll go out and i'll kneel i'll go to 3d shoots where it's extreme uphill extreme downhill uh shooting in the rain i think that a 3d shoot for an archer is probably one of the best things you can do just to go out and, and test your equipment and test yourself with your equipment uh, and realize where those weaknesses are because, you know, at least on a day like that, you're shooting 40 or 50 arrows at different targets in different situations. And you know, when it comes to hunting, you only get one shot and it might be in, in one of those situations. And you'll remember, okay, it's super steep downhill angle. You know, this is what my arrow does when it's coming out. Even if the rangefinder says this, I, I might need to compensate a little more. Or I might need to pay attention to this. Or, you know, for me, having hit a limb, uh, at a, shooting at an elk this year, just remembering that that limb at 20 yards and the elk at 40 yards, I might have a wide open window of the elk's vitals visually from where I'm standing. When I draw my bow back, I need to pay attention. Okay, I put my 40-yard pin on the side of the elk. Where's my 20-yard pin? It's right in the center of that limb up there, and you know my arrow's coming out high and then dropping. And so just little things that practicing... Uh, 
you know, whether it's in inclement weather, whether it's steep angles, uh, whether it's loading up your pack with heavy, heavy weights and hiking for four miles. Uh, I've gone on backpacking trips with my family to go fishing before where I only needed 15 or 20 pounds in my backpack, but I added extra weight just to see how that backpack performed, knowing that, you know, the first time I used it was going to be in September and it might be under a heavy hundred pound load of elk meat coming out. And so, yeah, definitely testing things at the, at the extreme side of where they're going to be used, I think is super important. Yeah. Well, I, I just, uh, in my crew, they would uh, probably be even more descriptive in their observations of how I cannot, I, I mean, I can handle it, but if you want to see me get frustrated, it's when I have an equipment failure or I have failed myself. And this is, this is when it gets on me. I'm harder on myself than I am anyone else. When I haven't done the preparation to know how that gear is going to perform under the condition I find myself in that day. Yep. I just kick myself. It's like, Randy, you knucklehead. Yeah. <laughs> you were out fishing this summer when you should have been, you know, figuring this out or, or whatever it might be. I, so I, uh, and sometimes, you know, it's really easy to blame it on the gear. And even, even to somebody on the outside, it might look like a gear failure, but ultimately it's, it's not, it's a mm-hmm. internal failure, you know, unless, you know, the gear absolutely fails and you can't do anything, you know, a manufacturing failure, that's, that's completely different. But our usage of the gear, uh, it's, it's not the gear's fault. It's, yeah. it's on us. I am the weak link in every equation of my gear, <laughs> my, bowl, my rifle, my clothing, my optics, you name it. I am the weak link. And I just, I remind myself of that regularly when I screw something up. So, <laughs> And sometimes you get a mulligan, sometimes you don't, you know, like when you yeah. get all excited and you lean down on your barrel and you pull the trigger at that wolf standing out there and you hear click. <laughs> Pretty hard to blame that one on the rifle, the scope, or the ammo. Um, but fortunately, every once in a while, you get to redeem yourself. But uh, yeah, so, no, I, but, I, sometimes, I, but sometimes I, you don't. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean that's a pretty extreme experience I'm talking about there of me getting excited and not putting around in the chamber. But <laughs> I so often hear people and, and I, I'll, I'll be honest i'm the same way when i was coming through this process uh i would think oh that and yeah, that didn't work the way i thought and you know, i'd try to think about well was it you know what could i have done different with this piece of gear that piece of gear over time i've just come to the conclusion that no it's the it, it's usually the fault of whoever's hands that gear is in and and now that i've accepted that i have way less focus on did my gear perform and way more focus on how am i going to perform yeah and honestly it's we i did a podcast several years ago uh, reviewing the book by jocko willink extreme ownership and that that was a bit it wasn't an eye-opening thing but it definitely helped me 
remember that we have to take ownership for that. And, and the more that we're able to take ownership for it, I think the more success we're going to see. Because if we get in the habit of blaming gear or blaming wind or blaming other hunters or blaming wolves or whatever it is, all we're doing is, is writing ourselves a prescribed cop-out for when we fail. And instead of digging deeper and finding out, hey, where am I in that link of failure? You know, it might be a very small part, but even a small part can improve and improve that success. And so, uh, yeah, I think just to tie in with what we're talking about with gear and and everything, taking ownership for it from whether it's a weapon and we're proficient with it, whether it's, you know, we've tested a a backpack out or boots out or wore broke boots in before the hunt. Don't blame boots that they gave you blisters. If you wore them for the first time on a 12 mile hike, the first day of elk season, <laughs> that's, that's not the boots failure. Believe it or not, that's, that's user failure. And yeah, the boots might not be the right boots for your foot and they might actually be a terrible boot. But the fact that you didn't figure that out before elk season, the, the ownership needs to stop there with you. And so I think the more that we take on that ownership, uh, when it comes to gear, when it comes to success overall in, in any aspect of our life, uh, the more successful we're going to be and the more that we're going to prove things ahead of time and, and have confidence in them. Yeah. And and I think that ownership thing comes back to I'm going to invest in myself because that's where the, fu- where the buck stops or whatever you want to say. And yeah. everything else is ancillary to me my knowledge and my ability to do what i have to do day by day even when i'm tired after six days of hiking hills am i mentally still there where i'm at my best that i can be and the equipment is not the crutch that i need to get me through that it's my knowledge and my mental attitude that gets me through that yep Absolutely. Well, who would have thought that questions related to wind, thermals, and scent control would have got us to such a philosophical point of view about (laughs) investing in tangible items versus investing in yourself? Deep thoughts by Randy and Corey. Let's not get too carried away here, you know, <laughs> like Socrates and Plato or something. <laughs> and I don't think we're ever going to be have statues of us as great philosophers or anything. <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody listening to this is laughing so hard they probably drove in the ditch thinking about trying to envision us as great Greek philosophers or something. But. No, just remember that's not our fault. That's their fault. They need to take ownership for that if they drove in the ditch laughing at us. Well, I that that went through everything I had on my list, and since I was in charge of uh, putting together the content for this podcast, uh, hopefully there was something in there that the audience found to be slightly useful. I I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. I, I not <laughs> Useful, yes. Valuable. I think the the verdict is still out on that. So uh, yeah, that's, uh, well, that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think the verdict is even out anymore. Been <laughs> fully, completely solved. Everybody knows for sure that no, if Newberg is talking about it. Yeah, you better use a heavy-duty grain of salt. You need coarse salt when Newberg's <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> uh, 
So, have you read the state of the the no, what would we call it? The, the I'm gonna say the state of industry. Uh, no, 2019 highlights. We'll call it that. That's what it that what they posted out at the Elk Foundation. Uh, they have their 2019 summary of where they're at and things they've done. So I guess you could call it the state of the union within the elk hunting world. But uh, this year, 2019, RMEF funded over a million dollars in elk-related research projects. They permanently protected 20 over 25,000 acres of elk habitat in 12 different states. And by permanent protection, that's usually through conservation easements and such. Then they enhanced wildlife habitat on 366,000 acres across 23 states. They opened new or improved, open new public access to just under 60,000 acres in nine different states. That's pretty serious stuff. That's crazy. And, and if you haven't been out to rmef.org to their website lately, go check it out. They just recently updated it, and uh, it is, it's more user-friendly, it's more modern-looking, and there's so much information and facts like that out there. Uh, one of the things I saw on the website when I was looking at it was that since, what was it, 1984, I think, when they, when they formed yep. Elk Foundation was founded, there's over one square mile of elk country conserved per day since they started. One square mile, like 640 acres? <laughs> one square mile of elk country conserved every day since they were founded in 1984. Whoa, that's a that's lot. That's huge. That's, yeah. It puts it in, yeah. In a, you know, you stop and look one year what you're talking about, what they've done in one year, but then you go back and my math is not very good, but however many years that is since they were, since they've been around. We'll say it's huge. <laughs> it's huge what they've done. Yeah, it is. And this year they ended with 234,000 wonderful members that support them. Over 12,000 volunteers, which if you are a volunteer for RMEF, thank you. If you want to be one, go to rmef.org and they will tell you how you can help them. And then there's always the great donors and companies that support them. It's quite a mix that's required. So so they have 234,000 members Yeah, at the end of 2019. So about half of our listeners are members then, it sounds like. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Or, or you could look at it and say maybe one percent of their members listen to our podcast. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> if you grew up in a town of five hundred people like I did, two hundred thirty-four thousand is a number that's really hard to comprehend in terms of yeah. But oh well. Here I am. I got us on another tangent, Corey. No, that's not a tangent. That's that's an important part of our podcast is yeah. recognizing what the Elk Foundation has done and what they continue to do, and they are not stopping. They aren't looking back and patting themselves on the back and saying, "Look how much we've done." They're looking ahead, saying, "Look how much there's still left to do. What can we do in a big way to to continue driving this bus?" Yeah. Are you going to be at Total Archery Challenge Elk Camp in Park City? In you July. know it. Yeah, what is uh, It's the third or fourth week of July this year. They moved it back. Yeah. I think July. Is, I know it's over my wife's birthday, so it's uh -oh. sometime the 
Yeah. How are you going to pull that off? We're going to celebrate her birthday at, at Elk Camp. Her, oh. You know, Elk Camp and Mountain Festival. What, what better place could there be to celebrate a birthday? Um, you, you you want me to answer that, or is that question directed towards your wonderful wife? I'm just hoping she doesn't listen to this episode. <laughs> uh, but, uh, it is a cool event. If you like to shoot, get signed up as soon as possible. Because last year, I think the shooting, the 3D range or the course, sold out the first day, the flights. Oh, yeah, they, they sell out very quickly. And it's bigger and better this year, so hopefully there's a little bit more uh, availability. But even if you don't get tickets to shoot the Total Archery Challenge, which hopefully you do because it's awesome, but uh, there's so much more going on. If you're an elk hunter, you've got to be there if you can. It's it's a pretty awesome event. And it's I'm just on the website, July 23rd through 26th at okay. Canyons Village at Park City Mountain Resort in Park City, Utah. So save yeah. those dates for sure and plan on being there. I'll be there. I know you'll be there as well as uh, I'm pretty yeah. sure all of the Elk Talk sponsors will be there yeah. uh, in full force. So Yeah. So, well... I really appreciate people listening to this dissertation about <laughs> gear and ownership of our own outcomes and stuff like that. And uh, you're, the the task falls on you to come up with the question list for next week, Corey. Okay. I will do it. And we've got, like you mentioned at the beginning, we've got so many emails. It sometimes does become overwhelming to go through them. And I know that, you know, we only have so many episodes and so many questions we can answer in those episodes. But please keep the questions coming because a lot of times we we might not specifically answer your question on the podcast, but a lot of times we formulate the theme of that podcast based on several of those questions um, and they do contribute. So keep them coming. Just go to elktalkpodcast.com and uh, click on the contact link and send us the email. And we do we do get them all. We browse through them. We, uh, that's where a lot of our topics come from. So keep them coming. Well, thanks for listening, folks. Have a great day, Corey. I'm, yeah, uh, you too. Probably going to hit the save audio button here, and we'll see if the technology challenges get the best of us. Well, I think Murphy just raised his ugly head there in the middle and said, don't ever say you guys are technology experts. I'm going to humble you here really quickly. And fortunately, we saved that audio and we were able to continue. But get us out of here and save the audio quickly before something else happens. All right. Thanks, folks. Yeah, thanks. See you on the next one.